Welcome to the USCCV First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCleskey. And today we are going to talk about an issue that is especially important for the Catholic Church. I don't think it gets a lot of attention in advocacy circles, but it's really important for us as Catholics. And that issue is the matter of doctrinal development in the Catholic Church. Um, and it's important for reasons we'll probably get to momentarily, but I just want to say from a practical point of view or even from the advocacy point of view, it matters for because our credibility is at stake. Um, it would be easy for someone to wonder how we can advocate for religious liberty today when it seems like we opposed religious liberty in the past. And I may ask, did we just did you just change your doctrine? And then if you can just change your doctrine on this, why not change it on other things like the meaning of marriage or contraception or whatever the hot button issue is of the day? Um, so you can see where it can take us. And it's crucial that we think carefully about this issue. Um, and fortunately for us, a recently published book does think carefully about this issue. The book is Religious Liberty and the Hermeneutic of Continuity, Conservation and Development of Doctrine at Vatican II. It's from Emmaus Academic. And the author is R. Michael Dunnigan, Associate Professor of Canon Law at St. Meinrad Seminary. And I am so happy that Professor Dunnigan is able to speak with us today. So, Professor Dunnigan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Aaron. It's great to be with you, and thank you for making the time. So, first of all, just kind of um, set the table for us a little bit. W describe the question that your book is seeking to answer. Why is Dignitatis Humanae um, kind of present a challenge to this idea of a hermeneutic of continuity? Yes, I think partly for some of the reasons you mentioned in your in your introduction, I think there is still some skepticism, even though now looking back, we're we're several several decades past the promulgation of Dignitatis Humanae, and I think there are are a number of reasons. I think for probably most serious Catholics, just the sense of there being a very dramatic change in teaching or allegedly a dramatic change in teaching is somewhat alarming to us because it's not what it's not what we what we expect and that is the charge here against dignitatis humanae and this document was controversial at vatican II, and i don't think it's ever ceased to be controversial it's the shortest Vatican II document, but it went through the most drafts. And kind of the key question, and, and I think this is really what interested me, is, is this a reversal? It really, you can find some pronouncements from the popes in the 19th century that sound very much like a condemnation of religious liberty. And then you look at Dignitatis Humanae, and it from a certain point of view, looks like the exact opposite. It looks like we're affirming only a few decades later what we had not only rejected, but rejected in very strong, very strong language. I think that is, that's one question, but I think the context that you mentioned is so important, particularly in connection with your own work for religious liberty. Really, since Vatican II, this is really, despite its controversial sheen, it's kind of 
become a real flagship document for all of the popes. They really have, uh, the Holy See is famous for its diplomatic activity. And really since Vatican II, it largely has been built on this document. And as you say, it's not just the, well, we need a basis and now we have one, but we want that to be a sound basis. We want to be, you know, building on rock and not sand. And also we've, we had, to, we've had at least two, maybe more very high profile uh, kind of crises that, that implicate the document. One has to do with the, uh, the traditionalist faithful, the uh, adherents of the Society of St. Pius X and other societies, but most notably the Society of St. Pius X, who've been very critical of the document saying this has changed, this has uprooted the tradition and we reject it. But then also you have some progressive, very progressive moral theologians agreeing with the Lefebvre camp that this has changed the church's teaching but instead of rejecting that, applauding that, saying, "Oh no, that's what we want. We want to change the church's uh, the church's moral teachings," and I'm thinking especially of people maybe in the consequentialist or proportionalist camps. So I, th I think I think those crises make this very important. And finally, I think that um, the document often is viewed as a document about the state. The very common belief from some very, very prominent people. But I don't think that that's what it is in the first instance. I, I think it's in the first instance, it really is a document about the human person and especially about the person in really in his or her most important facets, the person as a seeker of truth, the person as a social being, the person as a religious being. And if you take those things seriously, the need for religious liberty becomes more apparent, I believe. So Professor Donegan, can you just very specifically say, I mean, in a nutshell, the critics, uh, uh, you know, the, the people um, involved who are saying the document is controversial, they're saying that, I guess, what is the controversy precisely? Like, is this that there were too many layers peeled away in the onion of our concept of what religious liberty is? Or actually, there is the perception that the church said religious liberty is bad, and suddenly this document is saying it's good. What is precisely the kernel of the controversy that the document specifically says, you know, oh, no, this this is religious liberty is a good? The, the critics would say what you just said at the end that this is something the church is now describing as good and essential, which only a few decades before, and even these, these popes we're talking about, we think of the 19th century, but perhaps the most important is Leo XIII, who comes into the 20th century. And even some of the pronouncements of Pius XII, who's mid 20th century, even less uh, within, probably within the, uh, the memory of of uh, some of your listeners, I'm sure. So I think the question is, was the and and the, the what's being rejected, what it's being called sounds very similar, not identical, but what the what let's just talk about the label or the name, but the the thing the popes in the 19th century 
rejected was usually called liberty of conscience, liberty of worship, or liberty of conscience and worship. Sometimes instead of worship, they said cult or cults. Um, and what the what Vatican II says is is uh, freedom of religion uh, or liberty of liberty of religion. We have the two words in English, obviously, for whatever reason. So those sound they're, they're not they're not identical terms, but it's clear just in a common sense sense that they're 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 quite close, even if not identical. 80, 90, 95% overlap. So that's kind of the charge. But I think the question to, to go deeper is to look, and it doesn't, in a sense, it doesn't look good at, at the first glance when you see these, you know, kind of focus on the labels. But I think we have to ask, is the thing that the 19th century popes rejected, is that the same thing that the 19th century, or that the that Vatican II affirms? And I don't think that it is. I, I think particularly because we're talking about a, a more limited right, but also because what the popes are rejecting in the 19th century is something with a very strong enlightenment undercurrent. So, and, uh, so a, a basis in rationalism and skepticism and indifferentism if that's what the basis is and that's what it was for the most part at least at least in europe in the 19th century it's pretty clear why the church rejected it sometimes people ask why did it take so long for the church to i mean I'm very being very critical well i'm glad the church finally caught up to the rest of the world but why did it take so long for the church to embrace religious liberty it's kind of like uh, T.S. Eliot says: the worst treason is to do the do the right thing for the wrong reason. That's the problem. We the there was a very strong desire to affirm religious liberty, but we could only do that if we found a, a distinctly Christian and very solid foundation for it. So I do want to come to that question of the foundation um, here in a little bit, but just and there's a lot in this. So one thing I should make clear. Um, I definitely recommend listeners interested in this issue need should read this book. It's um this is this book though is a little bigger than books we often review on our on our podcast. So we can't get into all of the kind of facets of it and everything. But one of the so one so I'm asking about some sections that sort of interested me. <laughs> um one of the 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 sections you have a section where you talk about the scope of religious liberty. And you talk about this idea of a continuity of teaching around uh, in the way that the church is concerned about the integrity of the person. Um, and that even in those 19th century documents, there's a concern about integrity. And so I I, I thought that was a pretty interesting point. And um, so could, could you just could you talk about that part of the book a little bit? What do you mean by integrity? So can you discuss that section of the book a little bit? Sure, sure. That's my 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 pleasure. And I think that's a a good way to really uh, really get into an understanding of what the 19th century popes were talking about. One of the things that's that's interesting when you read them and we're primarily talking about the uh three popes who reigned in about the last three quarters of the 19th century. So Gregory the 16th, and then two popes with very long reigns, uh, Pius the, the ninth and Leo the 13th. 
And very often when they are talking about this right of liberty of conscience, liberty of worship, some of the popes are going to refer to the right as a single right, this right, or, but others will refer to, to it as more than one right, really as two rights. You kind of wonder, what is, is something going on here? Is this something to pay attention to, or is this no big deal? And I think that's something important to pay attention to. As I say, these three popes are our key ones, but you could go back to the very time of the French Revolution, and really the first pope to engage here is Pius the uh, Pius the Sixth, who's pope during the time of the French Revolution. And what's what's very interesting is the I think when we think of the popes, maybe condemning an idea, rejecting or warning about an idea, we sometimes think, oh, well, this is a this is an idea that's going to be spiritually harmful to us, and so they're warning us in the sense of our our moral well-being and our spiritual well-being and and that's entirely true but what you also always and i mean always see with every pope who who has engaged the uh the issue of liberty of conscience liberty of cults is a very strong concern also for the social realm and they almost always say these ideas or this idea, and I'll say in a moment why why there's the plural or the single, they are going to wreak havoc, not only in individual lives, but also in the church and in civil society. And this is this is kind of always, always present. And so I think what's I think what's um kind of going on is this real concern not just for individual well-being, but also for, in a sense, what we might call the common good for uh, the social nature of the person. That's a very, very familiar to us reading the Vatican II documents, especially, say, Lumen Gentium 8 and 9, where we're told the Lord chooses to save us, not only as individuals, but as a people. I would say this teaching on the social nature of the person, it's not as clear or as distinct in the 19th century popes, but I think it's there. I think the beginning of it is there, and that's why they're so concerned with the social milieu and why some of them talk about there being two rights is that they're usually speaking initially of the private right, that, that there's this private right being, being uh, suggested. And they'll talk about dangers there. Now, now one of the one of the other main things they almost always talk about is that as these rights are promoted by, say, the the French Declaration uh, of the Rights of Man and the Citizen, it's this famous famous document um, that comes out that really the same year as the French Revolution begins. The rights are framed in extreme ways, really in kind of absolute ways. And the rights are are framed really as kind of a positive right to do this. So it, the way that the right to worship is framed is as a right, a positive right to worship in any religion. Vatican II actually is going to do something. Vatican II often is believed to have done the same thing. But when you look at the text, it's something different and 
people don't always notice it, but it's significantly, significantly different. So one of the Pope's concerns uh, is that these, this advocacy of, of liberty of, of conscience and of cults, that it is promoting indifferentism, the idea that there's no difference uh, among religions. However, after they talk about that, they always go into this, and this is going to wreak ruin in society too, because it's in a sense, it's a um, a large-scale rejection of, if not all authority, of much authority. And so then they say, this is in the French Revolution, you have not just not just sort of a personal right to believe, but then tied with a right to propagate and to publish again an almost unlimited right not probably not quite unlimited but almost unlimited and this just very uh, extreme nature of the right is something the popes are very alarmed about so i think that that i think that focus of why is it sometimes the singular why is it sometimes the plural the, i think the popes are speaking in really the same the same vein but I almost kind of like that they have a difference of approach because it reminds us that yes, these things can be viewed differently, but they're 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 so close, they're very closely joined. And the paragraphs of that that the Declaration of of uh, the Rights of Man and the Citizen to look at would be Articles ten and eleven, and to some extent Article one. That that's another thing. Article one talks about natural rights, and the popes, especially Pius the Sixth, were alarmed that. These rights, again, these very kind of extreme rights, are being are being uh, defined as natural rights. Now we're going to have a Vatican II is going to define religious liberty as a natural right, but it's going to be very very far from an absolute right, and it's not going to be it's not going to be recognizing the right as a kind of a positive. It's not going to be. It's, it's one of the most difficult things the council did, but. It found a way to affirm religious freedom without saying all religions are the same. One of the issues I think um, that, that uh, that's a criticism that can be leveled against religious liberty advocates is um, this idea that it's only something you sort of invoke when you're losing, you know, and that if you're winning, then you're happy to oppress others or take away their rights and um in a sense i think that that's a question that even can come up here with these changes that like well the church was against religious liberty when you had confessional states and and or when you had like a certain kind of relationship between the church and the state but now like in the mid 20th century you know you're losing all your power so now you're going to talk about religious liberty um, and so one of the questions you engage a bit in the book is like, if we did, you know, if if we ever did have a Catholic confessional state, or if we were to kind of, you know, I mean, it's kind of hard to imagine, especially for Americans um, with our tradition of disestablishment. But if we ever did have a Catholic establishment um, of religion and, you know, again, probably not here, but maybe in another country, how does what did that does Vatican II take away? Does Dignitatis Humanae take away that that possibility? What would it mean for non-Catholic religions and given Vatican II if we did have something like a Catholic confessional state? Or does is Vatican II saying like, well, you can't have confessional states because they always end up being coercive? Um, can you talk a little bit about that? 
about that issue. Sure, absolutely. I, I think those are those are uh, very important questions. I think you're right that sometimes there there is this 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 critique, and not always with not always without uh, not always completely without reason that there can be kind of a hypocrisy. And sometimes people look at the even look at the early church and say, well, we see in you know Tertullian and Lactantius these pleas for freedom. But then once freedom comes, yeah, there's widespread freedom for a while. But then just a few decades later with Theodosius, we get the we get official Christianity. And th th this, but this was even closer to our own time before Vatican II. This was also a key, a key issue, especially in the late 40s, there was some real criticism about uh, I mean, if you were going to look at what in the discussion, say right before Vatican II or leading up to Vatican II, what what are the two models that are would be kind of the predominant ones? They would probably be Spain and the United States, uh, where you've got the what sometimes might be called the lay state in in the U.S. And then in Spain, you've got official Catholicism and Protestants not having. Protestants could worship at home, but not publicly. And there was some real critic, a lot of criticism of this. And in the 40s, there, there was quite wide coverage of this. There were, I, I think there were some protests in Spain, and that kind of drew attention to this issue. And so kind of that idea, what's the fate of, say, Protestants in places like Spain, uh, that you know, could kind of drive this, could kind of drive this debate. And uh, I think that same, I think that same kind of question also shows us why this is just such a difficult issue and why it takes, people criticize the church for being late to the table in recognizing religious liberty. You could say that about the, in the bigger picture, you could say that about the secular governments too. This is really distinctively an issue, speaking of religious liberty as a right, as a human right, a natural right, this is really a, a fairly young issue, 250 years or something like that. And why is that? Well, it's really because of exactly, I think, what you've, what you've emphasized, that historically, very often, not always, but very often, people would, some group might plea for liberty, and if they obtained it, they would, uh, they they might grow, and even they might have immigration to their country or their state, and then they might even attain the majority, and they might actually then sort of turn on the people who extended them liberty. Uh, that that unfortunately, that's exactly what happened in the state of Maryland. In the Maryland, really was on the forefront. It had a very very early religious liberty law, or I think it was called religious toleration, but it was in the late 1640s. And it was so kind of welcoming that others came in and they, uh, they, I mean, Maryland was really founded as a largely Catholic colony, but others came in because there was freedom and they have actually were able to outvote the Catholics. And in a sense we had, uh, 
Catholics weren't able to hold office anymore. anymore Those were Virginians, right? That was Virginians. <laughs> hey, hey, don't, he's, he's trying to start trouble here because he lives in Maryland. I live and in I live Maryland. In Virginia. Mary over I'm, here is a very. I'm loyal to the Commonwealth. Yeah, there was those Virginians who came in and took <laughs> took the religious liberty. No, sorry, sorry. You'll have to settle this between the two of you. I'm afraid. I don't. I don't want to. Uh, uh, I don't want to be a cause. See, now I've. Now I've I've caused dissension in the uh, in the uh, the USCCB right. right. household. No, no, no. We're Catholic before we're you know. That's good of to our state, that's right, good. Aaron. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That, that's good to hear. And, and so th this was a uh, th th this was a uh, Aaron. I know you're familiar with Barrett Turner's work, and he really focuses on this in his uh, dissertation that he did for Catholic University, and he. What's even what 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 we really needed to be able to recognize a right of religious liberty was to have some security and reciprocity to address the exact issue that you're talking about. To say, well, if we do, if we are the Marylanders who extend liberty to 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 others, what's going to what's going to protect us? And this is another late arrival, we don't really get these kind of pacts among kind of religions and among nations until the mid-20th century. So uh, again, we've got a lot of factors. We've got, we've got factors pushing us towards recognition of religious liberty, but there's some real hurdles. And that idea of reciprocity is, is an extremely important one. I, th I think that there are two issues you have brought up that I want to follow up on. And the first one is something you mentioned earlier. I probably should have asked you this earlier. Um, you mentioned that most people think of dignitatis humanae and the religious liberty question as a question primarily about the state, but that you think that the issue is that it's more about the human person. Could you just, can you talk more about that how is it that the, that this is mostly an issue of the human person? Um, and then and then um, and then I'll have one more follow up question for you. Good. Yeah, I, th I think that's very important. And, it, and it, it gets to, well, what is the foundation of the right to religious liberty? And the ones that came from the Enlightenment, the skepticism, rationalism and differentism could never none of those could ever be the foundation for uh right to religious liberty in a Catholic context. In fact, they're also very depressing reasons, right? Because the whole the the, the whole idea of skepticism, and this is even you know, people who we uh who uh well Mary is a Virginian um, will certainly be a, a fan of uh, James Madison, uh, I, I'm sure that uh you know we want to avoid we want to avoid the bloodshed that they saw in the old world for 130 years. And so we're going to have liberty as a way to kind of have peace. But you would also have this idea, well, these issues, these religious issues, they're so difficult. We really can't settle them. We can't agree. That's what that's what the religious wars proved. And so just to keep the peace, we're going to extend religious liberty to everyone. And that um, that's a, a very understandable instinct towards peace and praiseworthy in, in many ways. But it's not at all kind of the approach that Thomas would take. Thomas also wanted to extend pretty broad toleration, 
But his idea was much more hopeful. His idea was, well, extend toleration because somebody might come to the truth. They've got the light of God. They've got their human reason. They've got you as a friend who's trying to share the truth with them. So they might they might prevail. And that's this just seems to be the way the Lord works. He he doesn't he doesn't wave a wand and solve all of our problems. He he lets us come to things slowly sometimes. So I mean, if you contrast Thomas's idea, even with the ideas of some people that we as Americans very often revere and pretty justly for many reasons. I think you see why even a even where the US, the US realm was much healthier than the French, obviously. It was we had a much, much more of a uh kind of an authentic Christian involvement in in our founding, certainly than what the French Revolution had. French Revolution was almost the opposite of of, of course. But um what the the council had to do was to go through several possible foundations. And the one one that almost won, but not quite, was this argument that the re, where where does religious liberty comes from? It comes from the idea that the state is incompetent in religious matters. The state, kind of as a matter of modern political science, we just don't see the state having, authority and things like the arts, aesthetic things, religion, philosophy, stuff like that. So so as a result of the state kind of really self-disqualifying itself, there's this realm almost kind of left over, the religious realm. And because the state has is not entering that realm, that's where kind of freedom comes from, freedom of religion comes from. That was came fairly close to being the basis of the Vatican II Religious Liberty document. One of the very prominent Americans involved, this council expert, John Courtney Murray, that was his favorite argument. However, that argument did not, did not actually win and drew some criticism from people like the French bishops and the Polish bishops because they said, boy, this just sounds very very political and legal. Where's the theology in all of this? And so this very fairly late into the uh, council process, a French bishop uh, really suggested, now the idea of human dignity had been present in some way all along, which, which was good. And human dignity is going to be what the council decides on as the real basis. It says right in the second article of the declaration, we're basing, we're basing the right on human dignity. But this French bishop, Alfred Ansel, he explained more of what that meant, that it's about the natural human orientation to God, the natural human orientation to religion, but also man's orientation to the truth and his social aspect. So these things, this this kind of consciousness of the of the person or this idea of the person as being religious, as being directed to the truth, and as being a social person, that's much more what the basis of religious liberty is. Now, what the key article says is human dignity, but you see these other things discussed, discussed more later. And that's why I would describe it as a document about the person and not this not in the first instance about the state the state's very important because they're probably the one going to be doing the most persecuting if there is persecution but another difficulty of 
basing the document on state incompetence is that if it's the state who's incompetent, the state is the only one who's disqualified from coercing. You and I aren't disqualified from coercing each other, and uh, other groups aren't, non-state groups. Well, what have the last couple decades shown us, except that some non-state groups can wreak uh, terrible damage on, on society, um, not so much in our country, but certainly certainly in other countries, and, and potentially in our country too. The, the other, I think, difficulty with the, uh, I mean, you'll have people, even very prominent people, as I say, like Murray, like other scholars who are still active today, but authorities who who uh, were writing after the council who say either that the document really was based on the state's incompetence or it should have been. The, the council didn't actually do that, but it should have been. That would have been a better basis. That was kind of Murray's position. But I, 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 I disagree with that. I think it's so clear that the document was based on human dignity. And I think it's a much, much better basis and a more theological basis, but also one that really fits in with the council's themes about the about the person. Yeah, if you if you're saying that if if your argument for religious liberty is state incompetence rather than, as you say, a more theological type argument, um, if that had been the view that won out then it is true that the church wouldn't really seem to be offering much that wasn't already out there, right? And but and then it's striking that it, it seems to be those figures who think that that should have been the foundation are also the ones who felt like, well, the church didn't really... They seem to like be concerned about the church just catching up to society or fitting in with instead of like having her own her own substance to offer. I mean, does that make sense? Very much, very much. And uh, you're right. Uh, Murray, John Courtney Murray actually was kind of disappointed in the, in, in the final document. And he only lived for two years after the council ended and he spoke and wrote pretty widely in that time. And he, he kind of relitigated some of these uh, kind of some of these issues, but I, I, I think you're, I think you're right. And I, I, the other difficulty, and I'm surprised that Murray, I, I should say, Murray did have some really good arguments on the basis of the dignity of the person in some of his writings, but he really gravitated more to this incompetence of the state argument. And uh, I really kind of regret that because I think he's he had better arguments in his own that he'd come up with himself. And uh, it was a very, very creative, uh, creative mind. But he, I feel like he, he he fell in love with the wrong beauty in a in a in a in a sense. Uh, he had uh, he had one that he that he uh, that he kind of overlooked or didn't put as much as much time into. But also, as you say, well, yeah, what how how different is if this is what the church is saying? How different is it? And another difficulty is if we're basing this on developments in political philosophy. Now Murray would talk about natural law, but he'd say, well, this is a natural right in our time. Well, that's not really how 
certainly how Thomas would describe natural law and how I think most of the tradition would just if we've if we've encountered something that we can really call a natural right, maybe we didn't discover it until pretty late. But once we've discovered it, I think we consider that a really a permanent discovery. Murray had a very close collaborator, an Italian bishop, or well, later an Italian cardinal, uh, but at the time a priest named Pietro Pavan. And they were great friends and agreed on a lot of things, but Pavan was more attuned to the need to have this described as a permanent right, a real natural right, because although um, I, we kind of have to remember the, the 60s in a, in a sense where there there's just seemed to be, everything seemed to be going right for Catholics in America, right? Just before the council, uh, we have a Catholic president elected, which, which even most Catholics had considered an impossibility. And six weeks later, you've got Murray on the cover of Time magazine. And you've got, um, you, and you've, the war is, the war is only, uh, you know, only 15 years, 20 years in the past. So, the stock of the U.S. is very is kind of very high, so I think Murray's probably thinking of achievements of American political philosophy that are never going to change. But the things of this world, they they can get better, but they can decline too. And we certainly know that in regimes, uh, they they can decline, and and that's that that's something something that uh, uh, that certainly can happen. So I, I think that's a danger, and also. I think looking back, if we're going to say the state's incompetence in religion, we would probably look at previous church-state arrangements and say, but it doesn't seem like they were really acting like the church was incompetent, like or the state was incompetent in religion. There was much more of an interaction. And I think we'd be probably in a difficult situation of feeling like we had to condemn or judge much of our prior history. And I think I think there just must be a sense that uh, the whole Christian society couldn't have gone so completely wrong for that long of a time for whatever, 16, 1700, 1700 years. You know, as I'm listening to you, I, that phrase keeps ringing in my head, that it, you know, the in incompetence of the state. Like, what was the blowback from people who were must have felt insulted and offended by that? You know, I've I've always wondered if if that phrase sounds as bad in other languages as it does in English, uh, and I don't know because now now when when uh, when Murray talks about it, he's not he's he's not really speaking of incompetence like you know the Keystone cops they can't do anything right. He's speaking kind of more in terms of like we might describe a church tribunal as incompetent just because it doesn't have jurisdiction. Well, it's just, it's not competent to try this, this, this case. But I've always wondered that exact question. Does it sound, because when we were here incompetence in English, immediately almost fighting words in a, in a sense, it's certainly, certainly an insult. And I don't know, I just I wonder if it has that same. It sounds almost the same in Italian. It's in competenza. It sounds so clearly the same word, but I don't know if it has that real negative, insulting kind of quality that it does in English. So, so part of it could be well, it just doesn't have jurisdiction. The state hasn't. It 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 doesn't have 
kind of the legal right to rule in this area, but it also might mean something a little bit less. Well, maybe it's just not well adapted. It's it's kind of not well adapted to uh, deciding these things. So it, it it could be something less. But but you're right, boy. For an English, a native English speaker, I think we almost always hear that that uh, oh boy, is 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 he incompetent kind of thing. And I'm just someday I want to find. I meant to. I'd hope to find out that if it had, especially in Italian, had that same kind of connotation. And I'm I'm sorry to say I just don't know if it does or not. Yeah, I mean, you know, the thing with the state incompetence yeah. argument that I really appreciated that discussion that you kind of bring out and um, I think about in other, you know, in other lectures and things I've read about this is that when you talk about the, a, a person, these sort of societies of, of like the church and the and the political authority are necessarily going to overlap in some ways. And so it's hard to. So the idea of like of declaring that like some clear cut incompetency is just seems very difficult in a document like this because there are boundaries and distinctions, but in terms of how these things actually play out in social life, it's hard to say that just like, well, there's this absolute incompetency in matters of religion because that's just obviously not how I think Russell Hittinger often has brought brings up the issue of education, how that's where family, church, and government all they they all all of those societies have an interest in educating children. So they're necessarily going to kind of sometimes have tension with each other, or they're going to overlap in some ways. So so to try to like pull them apart in some easy way, like. Again, at a document of this level, like that's that would just be very difficult to do. It seems like boy, I I couldn't agree with you with you more. I, I think um, a lot of what I, you know, kind of put forward in in the book has to do with disagreements with Murray. But I try to I try to pay him his due as well because he's just a phenomenally important person for them. I mean, he's really one of the maybe three people who. If he weren't, if he hadn't been around, we might well not have a religious liberty document. And then I, I think it's a very good thing that we do have a religious liberty document. I mean, he's really almost uh, one of a very, very small number of indispensable people. And he really made some great achievements. This idea of talking about the right as an immunity. It's not that not that there's a positive right to worship any anything or to believe anything, but that religion's an area that we, we can't coerce each other in, for the most part, unless there's something that has a real social impact, uh, a, a violence or a violation of somebody else's rights or grave harm to public morality. But for the most part, no, that it's, we're, we're, we're saying that, uh, not that there's a positive right to say or believe anything, but there is a right to immunity in making those decisions. So even if I'm making the wrong decision, yeah, you might be right that I'm wrong, but that doesn't mean that you can force me out of my decision. And I think that was such an insight. Murray was kind of involved in, involved in that. Um, but I I agree. The the, uh, the other side is 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 kind of very difficult, as you uh, as as you say. There are some just real real problems with this incompetence argument and the one you 
mentioned especially is, boy, it just seems unrealistic because we know there's this interaction and we kind of can't get away from it. What do you do when a church wants to wants to be incorporated, but the existing corporate forms don't quite match the kind of organization that this church is, whether it's Catholic or something else? Probably if a lot of a large number of your citizens are of that you're going to have to figure out something to do. But even if you decide not to do anything, you've you've still done something by by deciding not to do anything. And uh, I think Murray, one of his we've said that he's a very creative mind, that's certainly on the positive side. But I think you can say in some ways very, very academic too. I mean, he did get involved in public issues of his day, especially kind of the uh, funding of, of education. However, when it came to like these these issues, well, what do we do about taxes? What do we do about uh, about marriage? Something where both the state and the church have an interest. What about human rights? The things, what about corporate forms of, of churches, conscientious objection? Murray writes almost nothing about, about this. And I, so I, I think, I think it's, uh, where if you were talking to someone who actually had had to govern, I think you'd have some more realism there. And Murray, a lot of a lot of gifts that Murray had on the theoretical side, but I think there's just such a big blind spot and not recognizing that you can't take every issue and say it's either secular or it's religious. There's just there's just too much overlap. And, and the popes and the popes recognize this. I think uh, I forget now if it was Leo the Thirteenth or Pius the Twelfth, but they said yes, the realms are distinct, but kind of everybody knows occasionally they meet, occasionally they have to meet, and that's just uh, that that's just how it is, and they uh, hopefully try to be as cooperative as possible when they do meet or interact. Professor Dunnigan, I think that I'm about out of time, um, and I suspect you have to get back to work yourself, but I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, I really appreciate you taking time out to do this for us. Like I said, I love this book. It's helpful on the issue of hermeneutic of continuity, uh, but also I think it's helpful just for understanding the document. Um, you know, I think Church documents can be deceptively simple. I mean, they like it's easy to read through them and think you know you, and that's good actually because you should be able to understand just off reading it um, once, kind of get the un basic understanding of what they're saying. But often there's a lot behind them that it, that you may not realize. Like there there maybe are errors being addressed, but they don't like flat out name who you know, like they have people in mind, but they don't come right out and say it. So if you're not <laughs> attuned to some of the background, you may not quite realize what it what is what is being said. So um and, and um Dignitas Humani is definitely one of those, I think, that like it's it's kind of it's yeah, it's deceptively simple. It's there's a lot more going on until you start asking questions about like, well, could it mean more than immunity from coercion and religious matters? Or could it be could religious liberty be based on something other than human dignity? It just um, so this this really is very, very super helpful uh, book. And I really appreciate you putting the work into putting it out there for us. Well, thank you so much. It's really been a, a pleasure uh, meeting you both and uh, discussing common interest with you. So uh, thank you so much. And I, uh, I hope we get another chance to do something like this uh, some other time. Oh, yeah, definitely. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Professor Gunning. Fascinating discussion. Thank you.
Thank we you. have been talking with Michael Donegan of St. Meinrad Seminary about his book, Religious Liberty and the Hermeneutic of Continuity, Conservation and Development of Doctrine at Vatican II. I am Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCluskey. And thank you for joining us for this episode of the First Freedom Podcast. Thank you.